Hello, Lamb's Chapel. It is great to see you tonight. Take your Bibles and join me in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I am excited to be with you tonight, and I am excited uh, about this coming Sunday. Not only do I get to see you again on Sunday, but after the services on Sunday, I'm hopping on a plane, and I am going to California to retrieve my family. Yeah! And I'm going to bring them across the country to Fair Burlington right here. Yeah, I'm excited and that they get to meet you, uh, number one. They're going to love you, and they're going to love it here. And uh, you get to meet them, and that, that's pretty cool. And one of the things I'm looking forward to when we finally hit the ground here, uh, I'm looking forward to doing a little Christmas decoration in our new house. It's going to be a tight window because we only have a week after we get back before Christmas, but we could at least set up a tree, right? I think that's important for the kids. They've had so much going on. This will be nice for them to kind of decorate a tree together as a family and kind of get in the Christmas spirit. We all do things to get in the Christmas spirit, don't we? Some of you, you, that's what you do. You decorate. Now, some of you decorate and then others really decorate, right? I'm staying uh, with one of our elders, uh, Jay Lewis. His wife, Pam, has their house looking like the North Pole, man. I mean, Santa has vomited all over that house. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. It's amazing. Like, you should see it. It's phenomenal. Uh, but we, some people do that. Some people, you know, they, 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 you know, crank up some Bing Crosby to get in the mood. Other people, they just start baking up a frenzy. You know, they, they bake and bake and bake, and then they take some goodies to somebody who needs it. Somebody who's recently moved to town. Somebody, <laughs> somebody from California, you know, just saying. Uh, and then others get in the Christmas spirit because they, they like to watch Christmas movies. Anybody like to watch Christmas movies? Now, I don't get into the Hallmark ones. They're kind of all the same, aren't they? I think it's the same script. Every movie is the same script, just different actors, you know. But I do like the classics. I like Christmas classics. Now, what about like, uh, I'm going to throw some names out. If, you, if I say a name of a movie and it's your movie, give me a holler, okay? Who likes uh, Miracle on 34th Street? Yeah, that's a good one. How about, uh, how about White Christmas? Come on, come on. How about let's do a new one here. How about Elf? Oh my goodness, we got competition. And I think the granddaddy of them all is It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, yes. Oh, Die Hard. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, now, I will say that one of my family's favorite movies is Home Alone. Home Alone, come on. Everybody loves Home Alone. We all know the characters in Home Alone. There's Kevin McAllister, this precocious young kid played by a young Macaulay Culkin in his breakout role. And then you got his, his crazy family and all of extended relatives and all that. Uh, you got those bungling burglars, the wet bandits, you know, Harry and Marv, remember them? And then there's that spooky old man with a shovel next door. And then, of course, oh my gosh, I almost forgot, one of the most important characters in the whole movie, Neighbor Kid Mitch. Neighbor Kid Mitch? No? Neighbor Kid Mitch, he's so important. Without him, the whole movie doesn't come off. You Let me explain. So the McAllisters are going to Paris for Christmas, right? But on that morning, their alarm doesn't go off, and they sleep late. They're going to miss their flight. So they're up. They're in a frenzy. They're trying to pack, and they're panicked and all this stuff. It's, it's a chaotic moment. And then in front of the house is the airport driver. He's there. He's honking the horn. And the neighbor kid, Mitch Murphy, is standing right there. And he's this annoying little kid, and he's talking to the driver. And he's like, hi, I'm Mitch Murphy. I live across the street. Uh, you know, did, are you going out of town? My family's going out of town. We're going to Orlando for Christmas. But first, we've got to stop in Missouri. We've got to pick up my grandma. Did you know the McAllister's going to Paris? Do you know if it gets cold there? Do you know if these vans get good mileage? And this is the kind of kid he is. He's annoying. And he's nosy. He rifles through all the luggage in the van, you know, when they bring it out there. Then the McAllisters come down, and they line up all the kids. And they're like, okay, get a head count, get a head count. So they're doing the head count. Well, this Murphy kid gets down here at the end. He's got his back turned to him, and they count him, and they think he's Kevin. And then they feel good about the count. They get in the van. They go down the street, and he's waving at them going, have a nice trip. Bring me back something French. But poor Kevin is still asleep. And it's all because of Mitch. And he misses leaving for the airport, and they leave him home alone. Hey, that's the title of the movie. You know? You're welcome. All right? But now you know. 
If there's no Mitch, there's no movie. If there's no movie, Kevin doesn't learn the meaning of Christmas. He doesn't learn the value of family. He never makes a connection with Shovely Joe. He never learns how to take out a burglar with a paint can, you know? And so it's real easy to overlook this important character. Well, in that line of thought, in the Christmas story, we've got some characters that have been overlooked that are rather important. And they don't make the cover of the Christmas card. But we're looking at the cast-off characters of Christmas. And tonight we're going to look at one of the most important ones of all, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. All right, because there's a thought here in the top of your notes that I want you to get, and it's this. The Holy Spirit is the greatest forgotten character of the Christmas story. And we're going to look at his role in the nativity uh, narrative right here. And as we do so, we're going to learn about a couple of other characters along the way. It's going to be fun, and I'm excited about this. Let's bow and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together, okay? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, the chance to gather together tonight. And uh, what a great time of worship we've had, lifting up the name of Jesus. I just pray, Lord, that you will illuminate the text for us today. May we uh, reap from this great theological truth that you want us to know, to take to heart. And God, may we apply what it is that you want us to apply as we grow in your image. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Digging in here, this text provides us with just an astounding account Uh, There is going to be here an announcement of what we commonly call the Incarnation. The Incarnation is the doctrine of God becoming a man. God taking on human form, taking on flesh. And that, uh, that event requires, necessitates something called the virgin birth. It's this idea of this young girl, this virgin girl, never has known a man. This girl named Mary... And a work, a supernatural work is done in her and she miraculously conceives in order to give birth to the Son of God. Now some people in Christian circles, they say they believe in God. They say they believe Jesus is God. They pray to him, they worship him, but they struggle with the concept of the virgin birth. And they say, you know, I don't really buy that. I don't really think uh, that's necessary. Let me tell you something. The virgin birth is absolutely critical to the gospel. You cannot have the gospel apart from the virgin birth. Because if Jesus is the product of a human man and a human woman and nothing more, then he is not God, he is merely a man. And if Jesus is a man and not God, then he is not the Savior. And if he is not the Savior, there is no salvation. And my friends, if there is no salvation, then there is no good news. And no good news means there's no gospel. And so we believe that the virgin birth is critical to the gospel. But in order to have a virgin birth, you've got to have a virgin conception. And that requires the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at his role in all of this. And in order to get the role of the Holy Spirit, we're going to encounter a couple of other characters. And the first one you know. Her name is Mary. And she is the mother of the Messiah, uh, as it turns out. The other character we're going to look at is not a human being, but he is an angel. And we're going to meet him in verse 26. And actually, we've met him before in Scripture. But let's take a look at this in your notes. Luke 1 teaches us about the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that we learn about the Holy Spirit is that he speaks through God's messenger. He speaks through God's messenger. Here we go in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. And so this is a supernatural messenger to announce a supernatural event. And it's this angel, Gabriel. Now, we've met Gabriel before. In fact, if you go back in the Old Testament, you find him there in the book of Daniel, for example. And that's remarkable to encounter a character as far back as Daniel and then to encounter that same character in the New Testament because this is centuries and centuries apart. You certainly can't say that of just any character in the Bible, but this is an angel. And when you think about it, it is really something to imagine that angels have been around for all of human existence. They've seen it all. In fact, uh, the only eyes other than God's that have beheld all the events of human history, they've witnessed it all, are angelic eyes. And this angel Gabriel 
is among them. And uh, angels, in fact, they were here before before any of creation came into being. I mean, they preceded creation. If you go back to Genesis and you look at the creation account, you will not see angels mentioned in the creation account. They were already on the scene. They are not physical. They are spiritual. And so they existed apart from the creation of the physical universe. In fact, in Job uh, 38, God says to Job, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And those are terms, morning stars, sons of God. Those are angelic terms. And so what he's saying is they were here. They were observing as I created. They witnessed it all. And so this angel has been around. And when he appears in the book of Daniel, he explains divine visions to the prophet. And if you look at the very beginning of the chapter that we are now reading, you see Gabriel right there, and he is revealing something to the priest Zechariah to inform him that his aged wife is about to have a baby. And so we, we've seen this angel before. Now, what does he have to do with the Holy Spirit? Well, when he instructed the prophet Daniel and, and revealed the vision of God, for example, the 70 weeks prophecy and others, Uh, The expectation on the prophet is that the prophet would write it down, okay? Write down this vision, prophet. Now, what do we call that? When God speaks and a human author divinely selected by God transcribes the word of God that is revealed to him, what do we call that process? We call that inspiration, Inspiration. It comes from the Greek word theonustos. Theos, God. Nustos or pneuma is the root. Spirit or breath, okay? And so what this is is God through the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to a divinely appointed human author to transcribe the very thoughts of the Most High God. And we call the outcome of that Scripture, the Bible that you are holding in your hands, in your lap, on your phone, that is the product of divine inspiration. It is from God. You need to know that's the word of God. It's not the word of man. And it came by the power of the Spirit. So when God speaks through any messenger, he is speaking by the power of the Spirit. And so Gabriel comes to this region, Nazareth, in Galilee, and by the Spirit, number two in your notes, he comes to God's elect. He's come to this place of darkness, this place where where they are intended to behold the light. And he comes, verse 27 says, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. All right, so I realize we're focusing on the Holy Spirit, but let's just talk about Mary here for just a moment. Let's talk about her. It says here, it goes out of its way to twice say that she's a virgin. Now, the, the first thing that we can assume, that because she's a virgin, uh, it's safe to assume that she is also young. Uh, scholars believe that Mary is likely no more than 13 or 14 at this point. Now, that is, that is far younger than most movies and, and TV shows and stage presentations would dare to depict right here. But she is a young girl. She is betrothed or engaged to a man named Joseph who is of the house of David. Now, that's very important that he is of the house of David. And we discussed this on Sunday. If you were here Sunday, we talked about how it was prophesied in Scripture that the Messiah would be descended from King David. This is part of a covenant that God made with King David, that your descendant will sit on your throne, and it will be an everlasting throne. And so whoever this Messiah is, he will be Davidic. But this verse, again, says that this girl is a virgin. Now, I want you to understand that that the liberal church, and that's a thing, my friends, the liberal church, the progressive church, has sought for years to convince everybody that this word here, virgin, merely means a young maiden. It doesn't mean, you see, that it's a virgin in the way that you or I think of a virgin. We're not talking about a woman who has never known a man. We're talking about merely a younger female Uh, person right here and they are doing this because there is an obsession 
right now with extracting the miraculous from Scripture. They want to strip it of anything supernatural. And so they say for, for all of church history, it, there has been this erroneous assumption that the birth of Christ was somehow a, a supernatural product of a divine uh, conception. And that Jesus was actually conceived naturally between Joseph and Mary. That is out there in liberal Christianity. But now if you're going to say that to me, if you're going to make that claim to me, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you, I'm going to say you've got some splaining to do. All right? Because if that is the case, why then will Mary say, as we'll see in the text later, she's going to say after this encounter, how will this be since I am a virgin? Why will she be so dumbfounded as to how she's going to have a child uh, if, if, the, if virgin merely means that she's a young girl? You see, you got to explain that to me. You must also explain to me why the angel Gabriel responds to that with the phrase, nothing will be impossible for God. The conception of a child is not impossible. It is not unfeasible and yet Gabriel seems to put it in the category of that which mankind would seem to be impossible because it's a virgin involved. You must also explain to me why when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant that he secretly tries to divorce her. Why is he doing this? Because he knows that he's not the father of that child. And it's a scandal. And the only way he knows he's not the father of that child is because Mary and Joseph at this point have not had any relations that would result in a baby. The fact is that this girl, Mary, has never been kissed. She's never been touched. And she knows it. And Gabriel knows it because he specifically went to a virgin, the text says. God sent him, so God knows it. Uh, Joseph <laughs> knows it. Matthew and Luke, who both wrote about it, they know it. Folks, that's what you call primary sources. Right there. That, that is some reliable sources. Christ is going to be born to a legitimate, actual, physical virgin girl who has never been intimate with a man in her life. And then we read in verse 28, this angel, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I want you to underline the word favored and favor in that text right there. Because this is why we speak of the Holy Spirit coming to God's elect. That's why I had you fill in that blank with the word elect. She is favored. Much has been made of Mary. If you grew up Catholic, you know that to be true. Uh, she has been venerated. She has been celebrated. She is worshipped in some circles. She is prayed to. She has been called the queen of heaven in Catholicism, which, by the way, does not appear in Scripture anywhere except in uh, texts dealing with idolatry. Uh, she's been practically deified around the world. Have you ever heard the phrase immaculate conception? Have you heard that? Uh, some people assume that's just the virgin birth. That has nothing to do with what we call the virgin birth. It has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. It has to do with the birth of Mary. The immaculate conception in Catholicism refers to the, the idea that Mary was born completely free of original sin, that she was born sinless. Okay? Is that true? Does the Bible teach that? What does the Bible say? The Bible does not suggest in any way, shape, or form that Mary was born free of sin. Uh, hers was a normal human birth. Right here in Luke 1, we've got this angel of God. He greets her, calls her favored one. Favored one. Some versions say, greetings you who are highly favored. Highly favored. Uh, comes from a single Greek word, karitao. Uh, karitao, the, the root there is from the root word karis. Uh, Karis, I have a sister. My sister's name is Karis. C-H-A-R-I-S. Same word. You know what it means? It means grace. It means grace. And so karitao means much grace. This woman is the recipient of much grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It is undeserved. Can you earn grace? No, it is the gift of God. Amen? And so what this means is that Mary 
as a favored subject, she is approached by God, not because she is sinless, not because of anything that she has done, not because she is a moral uh, example to be upheld. God coming to her is indeed an honor. It is not a reward. And later on, we're going to hear from Mary. She's going to sing unto the Lord, and she's going to uh, uh, recount what we would call the Magnificat in Christian history. In verse 46, she's going to say, My soul glorifies the Lord, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Speaks of herself in such lowly terms. Uh, she says, All generations will call me blessed. She's blessed. To be blessed is not something you do yourself. Uh, For the mighty one has done great things for me, not things I have done. He's done it for me. And she says, his mercy extends to those who fear him. And so mercy is not granted to those who are born sinless. She needs mercy, just like you, just like me. This This is a girl, she loves the Lord. She wants to honor the Lord. She wants to obey the Lord. But she's in need of grace. She has a need. For a savior, just as you or I do. And there are many misconceptions about Mary. Some people assume that, you know, because she was a virgin when she gave birth to Christ, that she just remained a virgin the rest of her life. We call that the perpetual virginity of Mary uh, in, in Catholicism. It's not biblical. Uh, we know that she didn't remain that way because it says in Matthew 125 that Joseph had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And so we know that they did not uh, engage in any relation uh, of that nature until Jesus was born. But after that, they enjoyed a normal marital relationship. Now, presumably not right after that, all right? But at some point, she had a whole slew of kids, and we read about it. Jesus had many brothers, many sisters. Uh, James, in the Bible was his brother. Jude was one of his brothers. In Scripture, Christ never declares that Mary is to be worshipped. He certainly had opportunity to do that. Did not. The apostles did not elevate her, give her any special prominent role. The Bible does not record her death. Nothing is ever said in Scripture about Mary ascending to heaven. So there's a lot of uh, clarifications to be made about Mary. Do we pray to Mary? No. There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't pray to anyone but him. And so Mary is just a God-fearing girl who God elected according to his will. And that's what this, this meaning of the elect is. She unified her will with God's will, but he chose her independent of anything that she ever did, of any inherent worth that she had. He didn't choose her according to her actions or her personal worth. He chose her according to his will. And my friends, when you are saved, you are not saved by God because of anything you have done. You are not saved by God because you had some inherent worth that you came into this world with and thus he just automatically saved. No, he saved you. He chose you in accordance with his will. You are the elect of God. All right? Now notice one more thing here that when the angel greets Mary... It says that she was greatly troubled at the statement. You, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you, he said. And then we see that she is troubled. Why is she troubled? Well, what, why is the Lord with me? What, what, what's coming my way? Whereby I need this divine power. It troubled her. And this, this leads us to the third thing that this text teaches us about the Holy Spirit. Number three in your notes. He informs us of God's blessing. He informs us of God's blessing. Uh, Verse 31, it says, And behold, says Gabriel, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That's an awful lot to lay on a young girl. That's a heavy, heavy revelation right there. Now notice here the child's name. He he goes ahead and he tells her what the child's name is to be. She's not going to pick just any name. It's going to be Jesus. What's significant about that name? We say that name all the time. We've sung that name tonight. We say it, we sing it, we pray it, we read it. What does it mean? Sometimes we do it without thinking about it, God forbid. Well, we talked on Sunday about some Jewish names, some Hebrew names found in the Old Testament. Hosea, Isaiah, Joshua. And we talked about how how they all basically mean the same thing. They mean Jehovah is our God salvation that's what they 
mean? Uh, Hosea wrote to the northern kingdom about the mercies of God, uh, about the fact that he would not forget them. He would raise them up even though they were condemned. Hosea, God is our salvation. Uh, Isaiah wrote to the southern kingdom that God would not forget them, that he would be their salvation. He would send his suffering servant. God is our salvation. Uh, Moses in the old generation, when they led the Israelites through the wilderness, out of Egypt, before they got to the promised land, Moses and that first generation were not allowed to go in because of disobedience. Who led the Israelites in? Joshua. He led them in. They could not escape slavery on their own. It was God and God alone that did it. Joshua led them in. His name, God is our salvation. And this Name Jesus. This is an Aramaic name. And it is a takeoff on those Hebrew names from the Old Testament. And it means the same thing. And the idea in this name, Jehovah saves, is that man has complete inability to gain deliverance. It is by God's power alone. If I were to ask you today, if you were to die right now and you were to stand before God and he were to say, why, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, you might, you might say what many, many, many people throughout human history will say. And if you ever ask that question to someone on the street, you'll probably get an answer like this. They'll say, well, I, you know, I've, I've, I've lived a pretty good life, you know, overall. I'm not perfect, but I, well, I'm better than that guy, you know. I'm better, I'm better than Hitler, huh? I mean, I do good things. I do this, I do this, I do this. And you'd give me your moral resume, you know. And if you did that... I'd have to take you to Scripture. I'd have to say, you know what the word of the Lord says? It says in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And what is that name? It's Jesus. Jehovah is our salvation. It's not you. It's God and only God. And the angel goes on, and he says in the text there that he, this child, Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And that is undoubtedly God, the Son of God. Now, have you ever had some Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door? You know, they show up in their little group of two and they got their nice white shirt and black ties. And maybe you've asked them, perhaps, what do you believe about Jesus? If you ask them that, they will say, oh, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But you know what they mean by that? It's a title, but it's not a, it's not a claim to divinity. When they say that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, what they mean by that etymology is he's the Son of God. He's not the Father. See, the Father, now that's God. Jesus is just the Son of God. And so they deny his divinity while allowing him to keep this title, to retain this title. That sounds nice. Well, you want to know what the Jews thought of that title, Son of God? The Jews interpreted that very, very seriously. In John 5, 8, it says that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. See, they knew what this meant. For the Jews, they understood the Son of God was a claim uh, of Godhood. That, that this man implied that he was of the exact same essence and authority as God the Father. God the Father is holy. Jesus is holy as the Son of God. God the Father is, is eternal. Jesus is eternal. God the Father is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Jesus is all three of those things too. They understood what this title meant and they were willing to, ki willing to kill him for it. And Jesus evidenced that he had the authority of God. Every miracle he performed all throughout his public ministry, he healed the sick, he healed the lame, he healed the blind, he calmed the wind, he calmed the waves, he raised the dead, he raised himself. He asserted his deity. The son has always been regarded by scripture as undiminished deity. And Gabriel asserts that this is, this is more than just a human baby. And he goes on to say in the text that, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Kind of sounds like what we read in Isaiah on Sunday. This is prophetic. 
right here. And so he says he's going to give him the throne of his father, David, his ancestor, David. And what he's saying is, this is the Messiah. Because we know from the Old Testament that the Messiah will be descended from David. It will be on the throne of David that the Messiah will be seated. And so this individual is the promised one. How far back does this promise go? Well, we know it goes back to David when God made his covenant with King David, but it goes back farther than that. You could go all the way back to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, Abraham, a chosen people is going to come from you. You're going to be the father of a mighty nation. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you the the father of descendants. You can't even count them. They're going to be like the stars. They're going to be like the sand on the seashore. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And through you, through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And Paul would later write that that seed is Christ. He's the Messiah. And so this promise goes back to David It goes back farther than David to Abraham, but it goes back farther than that. You could go back to the first book in your Bible. You go back to Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? Bad stuff. You had the fall. The fall of man. Remember God told Adam and Eve, there's only two people on the earth at this point. Now listen to me, you guys. Everything you see is yours. There's a tree in the middle of the garden, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And what'd they do? They ate of that tree. Why? The serpent deceived Eve, and she ate. And she gave to her husband, and he ate. And then God comes along, and he's ticked. And he's angry with the serpent. And he looks at that old serpent, the devil, and he says, because you've done this, I'm going to put enmity between her seed and your seed. And her seed will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. Now, who is the seed? That's Jesus Christ. What have we just heard in Genesis 3? The gospel. It's the gospel. Trivia question, where does the gospel first appear in Scripture? Not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John. The first appearance of the gospel is in Genesis chapter 3. That the seed that comes through mankind will one day crush the serpent's head. Folks, that happened at Calvary. But in doing so, the serpent would strike and bruise his heel, and that is symbolic of the price that he paid. He had to lay down his life. In order to have that victory, he had to lose his life. That's the gospel. And so this promise has been around since the first book in your Bible. And so we've established that this is the Messiah. And then the next thing that I want you to see in your notes that the Holy Spirit does, and we haven't seen him yet, we haven't heard his name yet, but make no mistake, he's at work, he's talking. He's speaking through his messenger. But the next thing we see in your notes, number four, he invites our faith. He invites our faith. In verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin, how will this be? Now, when you read that, you might not see faith there. You might look at that and go, "Eh, I don't know. That That doesn't seem like faith. Now, listen, I want you to read this right. Look at this. What is she doing? She's asking a question. She's asking, is there anything wrong with asking a question? Nothing wrong with that. So I want you to understand something. This is not doubt. This is not doubt. This, this isn't like earlier in chapter 1 when, when this same, Abriel, uh, same angel Gabriel, he goes to Zechariah. He says, Zechariah, your wife, who's very old, she's going to have a baby. And he says, he says to the angel, he says, how will I know this? How will I know this? You know, my wife and I are very old. How will I know this is of God? Now, folks, that's doubt. That was doubt. You know, he's looking for proof uh, of the message's authenticity as though an angel isn't proof enough, you know? Mary's not asking for credentials here. She's not looking for proof. She's curious. There's not a thing wrong with that. She has faith. She makes a request of this angel. She wants to know how. 
How's God going to do this? She's marveling at this. She doesn't understand that this will happen. How many of you believe in God? All right. How many of you, you believe in Jesus, right? You believe Jesus is the son of God. Okay, you trust him, right? You trust him. Now, how many of you understand absolutely everything about how God works? You got it all figured out. You're like, if you got a problem, I'll solve it. Did I just bust out vanilla ice? Man, that's embarrassing. Anyway, you don't have to understand everything about how God works, do you? To have faith? Isn't it possible that even though you don't get it all, you don't understand exactly what's gonna happen or how it's gonna happen, that you, you can still believe and trust and have, it's kind of the definition of faith, isn't it? All right, you don't have to be a great theologian. By the way, lots of theologians that don't have everything figured out. Some of them don't have anything figured out. But she's got faith. And by the way, faith did not originate in Mary. It didn't start here. It didn't start here. You know where it started? It started with God. Faith is from God via the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 12, 2 says, He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God assigns, he apportions faith. It comes from him. It starts with him. He empowers our faith via the Holy Spirit. And so in faith, Mary asks this question and the Spirit answers through Gabriel. And this is number five in your notes that he imparts God's power. He imparts God's power. Look at verse 35. It says, and the angel answered her. This is the answer to the question. How will this occur? How will this happen? How can this be? Here's the answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. The Son of God. This is the heart of the doctrine of the incarnation. Right here in this, in this verse, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon this virgin girl. And the power of God will overshadow her. That word is very important. The concept, the theme, the image of, of the shadow of God. That is a theme in the Old Testament that is very, very important. It has to do with man's utter inability it has to do with God's might to deliver. That's why David writes in Psalm 91 that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. In Psalm 57, be merciful to me, O God. Uh, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. Uh, it's, it's this image of man's utter helplessness and this, this divine covering whereby it is communicated as, as the angel communicates to Mary. Basically, you don't know how this is going to happen. You don't have the ability to make this happen. You are not even an adequate vehicle by which this is going to happen. But what you need to understand is God's got this. He's in total control. This is a complete act of God. And the means by which God is going to accomplish this, Mary, is the Holy Spirit. Who, by the way, is God. He is God. I mean, honestly, this is, this is how the Bible reads from beginning to end. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's all done. The Holy Spirit is what God has always used to accomplish his purposes in the world. First of all, the Holy Spirit is God. Are we on the same page there? The Holy Spirit, is not, he's, not, he's not a force. He's not an entity. He's not an it. He, he's got a personality. He is a member of the Trinity, a member of the Godhead. In John 14, Jesus is in the upper room. He's with the disciples. He's already told them, boys, I'm leaving. Where I'm going, you can't go. Okay. And then he, then he says to him, he goes, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I can only imagine how they freaked out in their heads at that. 
how they freaked out. They, 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 must have been, they must have been really challenged by that because they're thinking, keep your commands. If we love you, we've got to keep your commands. I, 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 I can't. I don't know. How. Lord, you've seen our work. You know us. We're selfish. We're lazy. We're disobedient. And before they can even articulate that, it's as though God, Christ, read their minds because the next words out of his mouth are, and I will ask the Father, and he will send another. And in that sentence, you've got the Trinity. Huh? And I, the Son, Christ, will ask the Father, and he will send another, the Holy Spirit. You get the whole trinity. And that word another, there's two words he could have used there. The first word for another in, in Greek is heteros. Heteros. And it means another of a different kind. Right? Heteros. Heteros. If you're heterosexual, you're attracted to someone who is a different kind than you. Right? The other word in Greek is alos. Alos. And it means another of the same, the exact same kind. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to send another who's just like me. Meaning what? He's divine. He's God. The Holy Spirit is God. He's God. And thus he has power. And by this power, God accomplishes his purpose. The Holy Spirit was present at creation in Genesis. Right away you see him. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. He's instrumental. He is engaged in creative acts in Genesis. And just like that work, he is going to be engaged in creative acts in the womb of this virgin girl. And the product of that supernatural work that is devoid of any human contribution is the Son of God. And in the same way, in our lives as Christians, we do nothing apart from him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Everything that we do as believers is by the power of the Spirit. And we don't focus on him enough. And so this child to be born will be called holy. Holy. The Son of God. Folks, this is not like any human child that has ever come before. He is holy. There are no human children that are born holy. Okay? Only Jesus. I know you love your kids. They ain't holy when they're born. That's not the case, okay? David said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, if you have a little baby right now, you may look at that baby. You may think, man, man, he or she is cute. Man, they're perfect. They're not perfect. And it won't, it won't be long before you understand that. <laughs> the day is coming soon. When you will look at them and you go, oh, 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 you're, you're a product of the fall. Yeah. Whoa, what devilry is this? You know? No kid is perfect. Now, I love my kids. I love them all. Uh, right now, my favorite is the youngest. But anyway, I got, I, got, I got a youngest boy named Grayson, and I love this kid. And he cracks me up, and he is, he is handsome, and he is talented, and he is charming, and you'll get to meet him and all that stuff. But he is capable of, of, of trying daddy's patience at times. It happens. Uh, at the beginning of the summer, uh, we had a little episode. My, my oldest girl, uh, Delaney, she's a bit of a seamstress, and uh, she has a sewing machine in her room. Well, she broke the needle. The needle on her sewing machine broke. And so she carefully took it off. She's very conscientious. And she, she wanted to throw it away, but she didn't want to poke a hole in the trash bag. And so she takes it. And you, you, you're going to gasp when you hear this because you're probably going to guess where this is going. But I promise her intentions were good. She took a water bottle. And it had, a little, it had some water in the bottom. And she unscrewed it. And she put the needle inside the water bottle so as to not tear the bag in her wastebasket. She screwed the lid on tight and she put the bottle in the trash because who in their right mind is going to drink a water bottle out of the trash? Enter my son Grayson. He's 11. He walks into the room Sister's gone, he's thirsty, it's a hot Modesto summer night, he looks around, there's a water bottle in the trash, and he thinks to himself, well that looks pretty good, and he takes it, 
and he guzzles the whole thing, needle and all. His sister comes in the room, sees the water bottle, says, wait, well, where did you get that? Oh, no, no, no. And they come downstairs. She tells us what happened. I say, get your shoes on. Let's go to the ER. We got to go to the ER. And we go to the ER. We were there all night long, me and Grayson. X-ray after X-ray, MRI. We go through all this stuff. It all ended up fine, but it was an all-night affair. And about 3 a.m., I look at him. I go, and I'm exhausted. He's exhausted. I go, kid, are you ever going to do this again? He's like, I can't make you any promises. Conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity. (laughs) Just like you and just like me. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He's the son of God. He came into the world, not the purpose, uh, not the product of human uh, uh, work, but the product of supernatural, spiritual conception. Incidentally, the living word of God, Jesus, and the written word of God, the Bible, have the same origin, okay? They both came via the Holy Spirit into this physical world, all right? Christ existed in eternity, but his physical form came by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like the Holy Scriptures. How does, question, how does, how do sinful, fallen, error-prone men produce inerrant Scripture? Answer, they can't unless God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspires them, imparts the thoughts of God that they may transcribe them and produce an inerrant, inspired body of work. How does a sinful, fallen girl birth the Son of God? Answer, she can't unless God through the power of the Holy Spirit, does a supernatural, miraculous work in her that she conceives by that power and produces the God-man. How do sinful people like you and like me enter heaven where God allows no sin? Answer, we can't unless God, (laughs) through the power of the Holy Spirit, comes to us convicts us, draws us, regenerates us, seals us, transforms us, gifts us, empowers us, creates a new creation, born unto eternal life. And then the sixth thing in your notes, what we see is that the Holy Spirit reassures us of God's faithfulness. Verse 36 Verse 36, the angel says, And behold, Mary, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And so Mary is given a sign here. Her cousin Elizabeth is going to have a baby. Elizabeth is aged, well past childbearing years, and yet she's going to have a baby. Trivia question, what is Jesus' relationship to John the Baptist, their second cousins? Because Mary and Elizabeth are are cousins. And so to solidify that God can and does do the impossible, Gabriel reveals to Mary this, this as an example of the evidence of God's faithfulness. And this example harkens back to his faithfulness in history. Because look at what this angel says next. In verse 37, he says, For nothing will be impossible for God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Folks, I believe this is the greatest statement of faith in the entire Bible because with that phrase, Gabriel takes Mary all the way back to Genesis 18 when God told Abraham and Sarah, by this time next year, you're going to have a son. And Sarah laughed. And what did God say? Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? Very similar to what we're hearing. But if you think about it, (laughs) it's as though Gabriel's words to Mary are the answer to the rhetorical question posed by God back in Genesis 18. Is anything too hard for God? Nothing 
will be impossible for God. With God, all things are possible. That's the answer to that rhetorical question. And in verse 38, Mary says, behold, this is her response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Ladies, imagine having to explain to your parents, your family, to your friends, to your fiance, exactly how it is that you came to be pregnant, though you had never known a man. You've never been kissed. Especially in Mary's day when, according to the book of Exodus, if you are a betrothed woman and you sleep with another man, that's grounds for stoning. What do, you, what, do you, you, what do you say? Oh, no, no, you don't understand. I have conceived by the Holy Spirit. Well, there, there, there's no Old Testament precedent for that. That's never happened in Scripture. You can't point to Abraham and Sarah. That's not the same. That's God doing a miracle, but it's not, it's not the conception of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's God enabling normal conception through people who are past childbearing years. This is something completely unprecedented. Well, what you do if you're Mary is that if you believe that God ordained it by the Spirit, then you believe that he could bring it to pass by the Spirit, and you therefore walk according to that Spirit in power and faith that came from that Spirit, and you walk in the shadow of the Almighty because you know very well your own inability and his great might, and that's what Mary does. She says, I am your servant. In the Greek, that's doulos, doulos, bond slave. She didn't just mean, I will do what you ask. She meant, I am your property, God. Do with me what you will. I belong to you. Believer, you are the property of an almighty God. You belong to him. And when the world tries to tell you that you're, you're the property of something else, that you are what the world says you are, you reject that because you listen not to the world, you listen to what the Spirit says to you. Because in Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Amen. That is who we are. We are who he says we are. That is the reassurance of the Holy Spirit the same spirit that did a work in Mary can do a work in you and you can live your life. You can navigate life by the power and the voice and the leading and the shaping and the gifting of this person, of the Trinity, and navigate life in the shadow of his wings because we have faith in the faithfulness of God. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I just give you glory tonight for what you have done. What an amazing concept to look at your word and to see all of the, the inner workings of this story, the aspects of, of the Trinity that are at play. God, this is not just a quaint story that, that makes for a nice song with a pretty melody. This is the epic account of the lengths to which you would go for all mankind. That Jesus, who is God, did not consider it robbery to be counted equal with God, but stepped away from the majesty, the glory of heaven, to become one of us slobs. And yet he lived a perfect life, the God-man, dying in our place. If there was no manger, there could never be Calvary. And we thank you for that. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.